everybody, and welcome to the next edition of Back Porch Leadership. And I'm Ken McQuiston. You know, today's episode uh, is a little bit about resiliency and sometimes not knowing what's right for us individually and having to have it called out by somebody else. And the story I want to tell you about today happened and started in December. Christmas Eve, 1992. I was a young tech sergeant, just promoted, stationed at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, which was about an hour and a half from my parents' house, uh, a little more than three hours from my wife's family. Uh, We were close to the beach. Everything was going well for us. We had a big year. We won a couple of awards, and we were really riding a wave of really cool things happening. And I had the opportunity to work for a guy named Colonel Bill Welser. He was the wing commander at Dover Air Force Base. And so for those of you who don't have a military background, he's kind of like the mayor, the CEO, the director of operations for an entire installation that has well over 10,000 people on it. Uh, and that doesn't include all their family members uh, as well. And having a chance to work with Colonel Welser at the time was was uh, a bit of an interesting endeavor because he was truly an overachiever. He's a guy that had gotten promoted very quickly in his career. He had incredibly high standards and expected everybody else to work at that same high standard level. And I was no exception. If people did great, he recognized you. If you needed a little help to get better, he supported you. And if you utterly failed and didn't really care about what was going on, he uh, would wish you well in your next endeavor. And I mean that in all graciousness because he was just one of those guys that cared about you, not only when you did your job, but what you did away from your job. And at the same time, knew that the job that we had was very, very important. But one of his greatest skills was he's a phenomenal mentor. He would talk to you about things to do with your family, your career, uh, and always encouraging people to move on to the next higher level. So on Christmas Eve, 1992, I got a phone call from him about nine o'clock at night. And we were in the middle of bringing troops back from Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we had a CNN news crew that was flying back and they were coming through the base on Christmas Eve. And the boss needed some folks to help you know, move their luggage and their equipment and all that stuff to get them on the road so they can head home to be with their families. So he called me up and asked me if I'd come and meet him at the office. And of course I did that. Interrupting the most important night of the year in the McQuiston family because Christmas and and Christmas Eve are just huge, huge events. But supporting family that I had understood the job and, and I went off. I pulled up to his office and sure enough, the lights are out in the entire building except 
except the light on in his office. Knocked on the door. He let me in. I sat down and he said, yeah, we're going to head out to the flight line here pretty soon wait for the airplane. So I said, okay, who else is helping us? And he said, no, just you and me this time. I figured, oh, great. He'll do the gripping and grinning. He'll shake people's hands and I'll be the one moving all the equipment. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to be quite honest, uh, I really enjoyed the time that I had to spend with him. So we jump into the van, we go out to the flight line, we're waiting for the plane to land. And on this flight line, it would normally house about 30 C-5 Galaxy aircraft, the biggest cargo airplane that the United States has. We're sitting wingtip to wingtip with not a single soul out there on the ramp. And of course, the phone call that the boss gets a couple of minutes later is a call that we're all used to in the military saying how the plane is going to be delayed up to an hour. So I thought that maybe the boss would say, go home, I'll call you when the plane's inbound. But no, he used that opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with me about everything from my family to my life to my career. He knew that we had been stationed at Dover Air Force Base for over five years. He knew that we were close to family and friends and we enjoyed it there. But he was that guy that wanted to know what was next. He's one of those guys that got me to think about things in my career and in my life that haven't yet happened and not really just enjoying the things that are going on now. So he started asking me questions about, well, where do you want to be, you know, three years from now or five years from now? You know, what are your career aspirations? You know, do you want to become a chief master sergeant? Well, chief master sergeant is the highest enlisted grade that you can have in the Air Force. And it's reserved for the top 1% of the enlisted corps. So that's one out of every 100 people in the Air Force get the opportunity to become a chief. Although I thought it'd be a cool aspiration, and I would love to have had the opportunity to do that, I just didn't know if it was in the cards for me. He began to tell me how much he thought of me, how much he thought of the work I did, how much he thought of our family, and how much he thought it that we would have a bright career. And not only did he think we could be a chief someday, he said I shouldn't forget the opportunity of maybe someday becoming the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, which is the number one enlisted person in the entire Air Force. That granted, I chuckled and, you know, right, that's not me. I'll, I'll never get that opportunity. He was very serious. He was just that kind of guy. So he was telling me that he thought that I needed to go off and do a job at a different base, at a higher level, maybe make some connections with senior officers and senior enlisted leaders, and kind of expand my, my resume a bit to help my career to grow. But, you know, I was pretty happy. I really wasn't having too much of it. So the CNN news crew arrives, and oh, by the way, he did help me move luggage. And uh, we went about our way, and, and I went home, and we enjoyed the rest of the holiday. So a couple of weeks after the holiday season was over, the boss called me at his office and said, hey, do you have a chance to think about, you know, some of the career stuff we talked about? And I said, eh, I think I'm good for right now, boss. 
you know, I'll, I'll let you know when, when the family's ready to move. And he said, you know, there's never a good time for the family to move. And I said, yeah, I know, but you know, we'll, we'll get there. After all, our kids were in a great school district. You know, we were playing sports, all those great things were going on. And, and we, we just enjoyed where we were at. So about a week later, he comes out into the admin area, the administration area where I was working. And he says, you know, come on in, I gotta talk to you. He called me in and says, you know, I've, I've got some challenges. He said, you know, if you don't want your career to move on and, and go forward, he says, you know, I think you're, you're probably gonna need to, you know, go back and, and work at your old job and, and let us get folks in here that, that wanna progress. So I'm going to have to let you go. Well, I kind of chuckled it off because, you know, the boss was also known for being kind of a, you know, a funny guy as well. And he came out of his office about an hour later and said, uh, what are you still doing here? And this time he had a cardboard box in his hand. I am not lying. Put the cardboard box on my desk, told me to pack up my stuff, and then I was fired. Everybody in the office stops dead, watching this whole thing play out. And here's the boss telling me, who I thought was doing a really good job, that I needed to move on. I didn't even know you could get fired in the military, to be quite frank. So I packed up all my stuff, put it in a car, drove home, and had to tell my family that I had just been fired from my job. Little did I know at the time that there was a bigger plan. See, about an hour or so later after I got home, this was long before cell phones, my house phone rings, and it's a guy named Dennis Zimler, who was the chief master sergeant who ran all the assignments in Air Mobility Command, which is the command that covered all of the cargo, aerial refueling uh, airplanes for the entire Air Force. And he said to me, what the heck just happened? He said, I just got a phone call telling me you got fired from your job. I said, yes, sir. I don't know what the deal is. I I, I really don't know. You know, he, he told me that, you know, I, I needed to move on. So he just told me to pack up my crap and go home. He said, well, stay where you're at. We'll, we'll see what we can do for you. I'll give you a call back. A couple hours later, I get another phone call. This time it was from someone I totally did not expect. It was a guy named Chief Master Sergeant Dave Campanelli. And Dave Campanelli was the senior listed leader for all of Air Mobility Command. And he said to me, how does one of my sharpest NCOs in the command get fired by the wing commander right after we promote you and right after we give you some big awards. I told him I didn't know. So well, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna pack up your family, you're gonna get all your stuff together, and you're gonna move to Scott Air Force Base and we'll find you a job. Not the news that I wanted to hear, definitely not what I wanted to have to go home and tell my family. But in true military style, that's what we did. Not too long after that, we had our conversion van with a U-Haul trailer, four kids, big dog. 
and we're getting ready to get on the road to drive to Scott Air Force Base, which would have been through Delaware, through Pennsylvania, through Ohio, through Indianapolis, and into Illinois. In the middle of probably the biggest snowstorm that the East Coast had had in many years. None of us were happy. We get Scott Air Force Base, we wind up in this two-bedroom apartment, all of us, on Super Bowl weekend. And before we knew it, we get a knock on the door. It's the chief and his wife telling us that we needed to come to their house for dinner. We weren't in the mood to go to anybody's house for dinner, but when a guy at this level calls you up and tells you that, you know, you're going to go. So we get the kids cleaned up. We go over to Campanelli's house for dinner. Sit down at the table, and inside of five minutes, he says, you're going to work for me. Little did I know at the time, this entire scenario was planned. And it had been planned for a while. It had planned that I was going to become the exec, the executive NCO to the number one senior enlisted person in all of Air Mobility Command, which has about 110,000 people in and around the world. Now, my job was going to be the scheduling and managing his calendar and, you know, putting events together and all that other business. But it took him all of about an hour of our first meeting together when I finally showed up to work for him to tell me that his job was to make me a chief someday. And that if I followed his lead and paid attention, that he guaranteed me that that would happen someday. So being the good airman that I thought I was, I did everything that I was asked to and then some. And I was exposed to all the senior officer and senior enlisted leaders in the command on a daily basis. The chief traveled all the time. So he told me that the meetings that he was supposed to go to, that I had to sit in and take notes, but not to say anything. So if the four-star general goes around the room and asks everybody for their input, you just say, no, sir, thank you, and move on. But what he was doing was exposing me to things that I had not known before, putting me around people that he knew would help me, setting me up for the rest of nearly 20 more years of my career, putting me in places that I didn't even know that I needed to be in. The most incredible thing about this is, you know, he told me about never talking and just taking things in. One day the four-star general turns around and says to me, in front of everybody in the room, it's about 40 people in there. Well, Sergeant McQuiston, what do you think? And I didn't know if I needed to listen to my boss and not say a word or pay attention to the general and respond to his question. I rolled the dice, I responded to the general's question provided him what I thought opinion-wise. And as we were walking out of the room, the four-star said, hey, thanks for your input. Without him knowing that I was about to wet myself because I was going to have to call the boss and tell him 
that I made a mistake and I spoke up. So I called the chief while he was on the road and said, hey, the general asked me a question. I had to answer it. He said, it's about time. He was testing me. He wanted to know if I thought that I had something relevant to say that I would say it. And all of this came from a conversation on Christmas Eve on a barren flight line at Dover Air Force Base, Delaware, with a colonel who thought that I might have something more to offer. Now, granted, I am not God's gift to the world. I know that. I know that it was the right place and the right time and having the right conversation. But what I want you to think about is that where have you been in your career where you didn't think that you could go any further than where you are now. And somebody else pulled you along and whether it was by choice or by force, they pushed you to a place that gave you an opportunity you never thought you would ever have. That's what Colonel Welser did for me. Little did I know Years later, his path and mine would cross again, but it did. See, years later, I had pinned on chief. I was now serving as a command chief myself in Germany. I'd been selected to be the command chief for the 455th Expeditionary Airlift Wing at Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan, where I was going right into the middle of the fight. I was there for a little over five months. And about three quarters of the way through the deployment, I got a phone call from another general officer that I had known that said, you're going to get a phone call in a little while. I just want you to say yes. And that's about the extent of it. So a week or so later, I did get a call was asking me if I'd be interested in being a command chief at 18th Air Force. And this was a command that had not even been activated yet. It was two different commands were coming together to make one. And they were looking for nominees to become the command chief at this brand new unit. Now I knew that there was going to be other nominees and it wasn't an easy walk in the park. I was by far the youngest guy. But if I thought that I got the chance to interview, I thought it'd be pretty cool. So my boss, where I was deployed, Jim Whitmore, let me fly back to the States, told me I had 72 hours. I could fly back to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois because that's where the job was at. I could interview, but I needed to get right back on a plane and come back. No R&R, no leave time in the middle because we were in the middle of the fight. So I did that. Got to the hotel in Illinois after traveling, really, for 36 straight hours. And I saw the other candidates in the lobby of the hotel. We exchanged, exchanged pleasantries, talked to each other, but I was so tired, I just went right back and went to bed. The next day, I went and did the interview. 
with a two-star general named Jim Essex. He told me that he was not going to be the commander. They were waiting for the three-star general to be confirmed who was going to have that job. So I did the interview. I left. Got a call a couple days later saying, you're going to be the guy. You're going to be the new 18th Air Force Command Chief. And oh, by the way, the commander has been confirmed. And his name is Lieutenant General Bill Welzer. I almost fell out of my chair to find out that the guy who challenged me to become something bigger than I thought I was going to be was eventually going to be the guy who hired me back to be his chief. I wasn't going to be running an admin section and I wasn't going to be carrying luggage. I was going to have the opportunity to lead people in the largest numbered Air Force in the entire Air Force and be the first guy to do it. The interesting piece to this is that this is not stuff that you can make up. But for all of us, whether we are young leaders and are aspiring to get better, or we get to places where we're comfortable and we don't want to progress, don't be afraid to listen to that person who wants to pull you along and try to make you something better than you are now. And it was really funny because that was, uh, General Wells and I literally traveled the world together in our time together. We were there for about two years and then General Welzer was retiring. Uh, he was going off uh, to retire. He was going to move to Florida. And I was going to stay back and continue my career. Little did I know after that, I was going to get the opportunity to even go to a higher level within the Air Force, uh, within the joint world, to work at a combatant command and work for a four-star general named Norty Schwartz, who eventually became the chief of staff. You know, the interesting part to the story is General Welser once said to me, he thought I could be the chief master sergeant of the Air Force. And I kind of blew it off. But on May 11th in 2009, I, along with two other guys, were interviewing to be the 16th Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force. I arrived at the Pentagon. And if any of you have ever been to the Pentagon, it is an enormous place. Very intimidating, very overwhelming. It was raining. I had to park my car literally, my rental car literally, a half a mile away from the Pentagon. When I got out of the car and started walking, I just stopped in the middle of the parking lot. And I could not get it out of my head. That then Colonel Welzer, now three-star general, retired Bill Welzer. Christmas Eve in 1992. Thought that that's a place that I should be. Now, ultimately, I wasn't selected. 
to be the chief, and that's okay. But I will never forget what he was willing to do to help my career advance and stayed connected to me through my entire career and even after he retired into this day to ensure that every opportunity that I could have was available to me. So for you as leaders, who are you doing that for? Who is the person that you're pulling along, that you're encouraging, that you're telling them that someday I'm going to work for you? Who is that person or people that you are leading, inspiring, and motivating to become bigger and better than what they ever thought they could be? You know, I often look back on my career and I know that I would nowhere near be where I'm at right now if it wasn't for a whole lot of other people that took interest in me when I was young and didn't even realize what my own potential was. But remember, this is, this is my story, but I'm hoping that you can relate it to what you do as a leader. Now, I realize that I am in the fourth quarter of my business life. I know that my sole purpose now, other than getting my job done that I'm paid to do, is to help prepare that next group of leaders to hopefully find those diamonds in the rough to hopefully find those folks who really don't see their full potential, but folks like us who have been down this road, so to speak, can. And what are you as a leader willing to do to help that person get to the right place at the right time? Granted, it was a long amount of time from the time I got fired till the time I had realized why I was actually at Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, I wasn't the happiest with with Colonel Welser. I mean, we basically uprooted our whole family and moved. And little did it know that I've been apologizing to him for that ever since. <laughs> because had it not been for him and the interest that he took not just in me, but in my family, then I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you right now. There are amazing things that you can do as a leader that don't involve anything more than caring about somebody. About taking the time from your day to sit down and have a conversation with someone Now, granted, it doesn't have to be on Christmas Eve on a barren flight line in Dover Air Force Base, Delaware, when the rest of your family is at home. But that doesn't mean that there isn't time that you can do that for the people you work with now. So I encourage you, take the time to connect with the folks that work with you. 
seek out those potentially great leaders and help them to get better at what they do and to be bigger than what they think they can be. Because you never know where they might wind up. You know, it was a couple of months ago that I called General Welzer one day and just said, sir, I just want to thank you for everything you did. Nothing's wrong. Nobody's sick. Nobody's in trouble. There's nothing bad going on. Just want to give you a call and thank you. Because I know that the roof that we have over our head, the cars in our driveway, the money in our bank account, the love that we have for each other, the caring that we have for each other and our family is all directly attributed to the opportunities that guys like him gave to me when I was a young guy. So I ask you all, go out there and make a difference. Be that person that can make a difference in somebody's life. Be the leader that they need and be the leader that you know you are. I guarantee we'll all be better for it. So, hey, that wraps up this week's episode. Do me a favor. If you like this, keep listening. Share it with your friends. Share it with your buddies and pals. And and if there's things that I you'd like to hear talk about or address, send me a note, kenmcquiston at gmail.com or on my Facebook page, or you can find me at Chief Ken McHugh on Twitter. And thank you all very much. Hope you have a great week and lead on.